The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. In this final session, some of what I'm going to do is pull together, especially the messages from Thursday and Friday. I'm actually going to quote some of those messages. I've been writing down some of my favorite things. Uh, and this topic of our conference is disordered desires. And what I want to talk about is from the Bible, how did our desires become disordered? What's the nature of the disorder? How can, how are these desires that have become disordered reordered by the gospel to become again what they should have been from the beginning? And I'm going to approach that in a few different ways through scripture and appreciate your patience with me as we go through this. I appreciate that Sam on the first night said that we cannot understand ourselves apart from God. You go back to Genesis, and we've been created, male and female, in God's image and in relationship to God. And as we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God created a world of perfect order. He created in six days, and he said, it is good, it is very good. God created marriage, and within marriage, he created sex to be a blessing. He said, it's not good for the man to be alone. That will make a helper suitable for him. And then the summary in Genesis 2.24, for this reason, the man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And, and so from the beginning, there was this wonderful order that was good. And we know from the New Testament, and yeah, actually also from the Old Testament, that God even designed our marriage relationship to be a picture of our relationship to Him. And we've also had Ephesians 5.32 read to us, the mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And so, God created marriage to be, I think Sam used the example, kind of like a mini-model of our greater relationship, our greater marriage to Him as a, as a place of, of love, of covenant love, and it was all good. And, and in God's original creator order, I see from Scripture, He had three good things about sex within marriage, in the right order of things. First is that the sexual union is an expression of the oneness of that marriage covenant. The two become one flesh. I love how Tim Keller put this. Sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. So it's it's a symbol, it's a God-given symbol of that union, and it's meant to express and enhance the oneness of marriage. We also know a second purpose. God said, be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1. And it is God's chosen means to fill the earth. And in God's wisdom, he puts children in families. In God's wisdom, he, through the product of the love of a husband and a wife, produces offspring. And that is part of his purpose of, of sex and of marriage. I like Doug Wilson's quote, having sex without children is like farming just to get a suntan. That God's design ordinarily is that uh, we have children, and that's a blessing, and that's another aspect that becomes disordered. But it's not God's design. What we see in our culture now, where you have children without marriage, and all the problems that come upon society as a result. And then third, and this is the part that Ian developed from the Song of Solomon, is the sexual union is designed by God to be something delightful enjoyable by both husband and wife. The fall was not a sinful sexual awakening. The fall was something else. 
uh, the song, and let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, or to delight in one another. It is a, a privilege and a joy within marriage. And you know, that's the one part of sex our culture recognizes as pleasure, but it's pleasure in the context of covenant with the expectation of children, not pleasure for pleasure's sake. And what, what has happened, though, and you get to Genesis 3, and when the woman saw the tree was good for food, delight to the eyes, she took it and she gave it to her husband, and he ate, and the disorder came in to the cosmos. And humanity put their will above God's will. Adam fell. And this created disorder in our relationship with God, which then creates chaos in every other spirit. And as the Bible reflects upon what sin has done to humanity, it does keep coming back to sex as being a, a major area of, of chaos and destruction. And uh, you know, in, in Ecclesiastes, you have the general expression that you know, God may be an upright, but he has sought out many devices. Sam made the statement that now we all have an orientation problem and that we are all sinful. Uh, we must be born again because we weren't born right for the first time, he said. And now we're born with all kinds of sin, but especially in the area of sex. And in Romans 1, if you want to look at that for just a moment, brings this out most clearly is that in verse 20, since the creation of the world's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood that what has been made, since they were without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor his God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, the birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their flesh, to impurities of their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. For this reason God gave them over to degraded passions, and women exchanged the natural function, and on it goes. But what we see here is that sexual sin is a theological problem. Paul talks about the Gentiles, and he speaks in Thessalonians about that don't be like them in sexual sin, that who know not God. And the problem with sex is not adultery as much as it's idolatry. Rather than the ordered world that God created in which we see ourselves in relationship with Him, and we serve Him, we love Him, we seek to please Him, we find our, find, we find our greatest joy in Him, sex has become an idol. And in our culture, of course, it's going uh, in many, many different directions. There was a line in the movie Titanic, I think, that Keller found and pointed out, where Rose says of her lover, he saved me in every way that a person could be saved. Well, if you've seen the movie, you see what that means. But the idea being that your, your fulfillment in life comes through some kind of sexual relationship. And if you're not getting that, then you're missing out on what really matters most in life. And then it goes on to say, as we've been dealing with, is that your identity then becomes your sexual expression, you're free to self-identify. And in Romans 1, you, rather than worshiping the, the creator, we worship the creature. And we make idols for ourselves, and it's not just idols of shapes of animals or made out of stone or of wood or of metal, but we make an idol out of sex and pleasure, putting that in our hearts in the place of God. Keller writes, our culture, in our culture, sex is a way to be yourself and bind yourself. It's primarily for an individual's fulfillment and self-realization, however he or she wishes to pursue it. And of course, all of that is self-destructive. And for us, even as Christians, we too struggle with how we deal with that struggle. But the hope we have is in a world of chaos and disorder, Christ has come to set us free. And 
Just as another passage in 1 Corinthians 6, a passage of great hope in verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And what he's describing there, and it's developed in the rest of the New Testament, is, is a twofold transformation that the gospel brings. First of all, is we come, all of us, having had and lived based upon idolatrous, disordered sexual desires and other desires in our lives that are displeasing to God. We come to Jesus Christ, who by his death has died once for all the just and the unjust to bring us to God. And he says, we are cleansed. We are forgiven of our sin. But it's not just that we're forgiven. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. And now, as Paul also develops in Romans 6, no longer are we slaves to this sin. No longer are we under the control of these disordered desires. And on the list that he gave of the people who won't inherit the kingdom of God, such were you. Many of you against adultery, homosexuality, anything outside of God's order, the idolatrous use of sex, that Christ sets us free from that slavery. But it's not just to put off the sexual sin that was part of our, our past. It's reordering, reorienting our life. And I like how Rosemary Butterfield put it, is that when she became a Christian, she didn't convert from being a lesbian to being almost heterosexual. She converted from being a sinner to being a Christian. And so the reorientation isn't to change your sexual desires into something more appropriate, primarily, but it's as you reorient yourself towards Christ and the great desire of your heart is not one kind of sexual fulfillment instead of another, but the great desire of your heart and the ultimate fulfillment is finding that in Christ, finding it in knowing God, which is how God designed things originally. Uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And when Christ is our ultimate desire, then we can enjoy his gifts, his gifts of marriage and sex within marriage in an appropriate way. Paul, I mean, the author of the Hebrews says marriage should be held in high honor. You know, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge, but the, the marriage bed is, is pure, it's good. And even this, when, when, when Paul can say later in 1 Corinthians 6, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body that we as believers sexually can glorify God with our bodies by living within the order that God has given with the worship of Christ being the ultimate thing. And then under that is an expression of that love within our marriages. The sexual union has its proper place in the order that God originally designed. Piper writes, knowing the supremacy of Christ enlarges the soul so that sex and its little thrills become as small as they really are. If you put sex ahead of the Lord, you're still an idolater, even if it's sex and marriage. And we're going to develop that more as we keep going. God's way is the best way. So disordered sexual desires are really a problem of worship. We seek the satisfaction that only God can give from earthly things, which then become our idols, but then never satisfy us. Like Isaiah says in chapter 55, why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what will never satisfy you? And we spend our lives pursuing something that even when you think you've caught it, it disappoints you. Now, for the rest of my time, what I want to do is approach this in a few different ways. In that now that we're believers, and Romans 7, which Milton just dealt with, is a great passage where, okay, I'm a believer now, but I'm still struggling. You know, wretched man that I am, it's not just my past, even in my present, as one who's been redeemed. And Paul talks about this you know, in Galatians 5.16. He says, when we walk by the Spirit, we won't carry out the desires of the flesh. 
But the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. But these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Even though we are in Christ, even though we've been set free from slavery, even though our sin has been forgiven, there's still a struggle that goes on. And the Bible gives us some tools, and I'm going to take one is a, a survey of Proverbs, and the second is how the gospel works in marriage. How, as we engage in the struggle, the Bible teaches us how to think about these things. And very briefly, uh, just summarizing really at the heart of the message of the Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, the first nine chapters are really confronting the naive one with the fundamental choice of life. Are you going to choose wisdom or are you going to choose folly? And choosing wisdom is choosing the Lord, it's the fear of God, and it's ultimately Christ who is blessed the wisdom of God. And, and yet it portrays wisdom as your true bride, it portrays Madame Folly as the prostitute. But in the midst of that, there's also, it's almost like the Song of Solomon. You've got the kind of typical relationship with God thing going on. You've also got the very practical thing is there are strange women and men who are going to go out and try to seduce you and tell you that they're offering you the ultimate pleasures of life. But when you become a Christian, you have the spirit within you, and you have the word of God to inform you. And of course here it's wisdom to inform you. Wisdom helps you as it identifies the woman who can destroy you, a woman who can help you, and a woman who will help you. There are three women in the early chapters of Proverbs, in Proverbs 1 to 9. And I'm not going to go through Proverbs 7, which describes kind of the seduction of the naive young man just because of time. I will point out that in that seduction, it's like a counterpoint to Song of Solomon, because you have in that seduction a woman who smells good and she feels good, and you know, all the sensual stuff in the Song of Solomon that's meant to be in marriage is offered to the naive young man from someone outside the covenant of marriage. The difference is that's going to ruin him. But what, what wisdom does, and this is something we all desperately need, we have a, a world full of madam follies, we have a world full of mister follies, we have a world that makes sexual sin seem so enticing, that in Proverbs admits that madam folly and the, the adulteress, the adulterer, it, it, he can flatter you with his words, she can seduce you with her touch, and it really would feel good in the short term. So it's acknowledging the reality of the strength of the sexual temptations we are experiencing. But then wisdom offers you, and the analogy I've used before is like, wouldn't you love some glasses you could put on that when you saw an immodest person or something on a television or a billboard or whatever, that instead of Madame Folly appearing beautiful, attractive, and seductive, she would look like some hideous monster, like something out of Lord of the Rings, one of those awful things that's attacking or something, and, and you would be repulsed by her. But what Proverbs is saying is that's what wisdom will do. And in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16, it's saying, when you turn to wisdom, she will deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth, that forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death, her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. So he's saying, when, when you embrace the wisdom of God, and, and the wisdom, again, embodied in Christ, and you come to God, the Lord enables you to see those seductions for what they really are beyond the surface and to see the reality in, in the person here. Madame Folly, she's a, a person of bad character. She, she abandoned the covenant of her youth. She doesn't respect God's covenant of marriage. She's a flatterer who's spreading a net for your feet. It, it helps you to see the consequences of it. it, it looking beyond the, the few moments of pleasure to looking at the lifetime of shame and loss. And in Proverbs goes in how you're going to have a jealous husband or a jealous wife. You're going to have financial ruin, shame in the community, all these awful things. It, and wisdom helps you to see again, the true nature of sexual sin the consequences of sexual sin, and wisdom trains you to stay away. And 
I agree that the, the, the highest reason to stay away from sexual sin is like Joseph in Genesis 39 when Potiphar's wife tempts him and how can I do this and sin against God? And I would love for that to be my response every time I'm tempted by a sexual thought or image. But quite frankly, sometimes Proverbs helps me too. It's like, yeah, if you go down that road, you're going to step into a house that sinks down to death and is going to ruin your life. That's also a biblical motivation. And sometimes it's one we need when our hearts aren't exactly where they should be. And so wisdom identifies for you a woman, the woman who will absolutely destroy your life, or the man, you know, reversing the genders for those ladies here. There are men and women out there who may be made available to you and who may offer you what the world says is the ultimate in sexual exhilaration, but wisdom helps you to see them for what they are. They're ugly, really. They're hideous. They're destructive. They'll ruin your life, and wisdom will give you the power to flee from them. But then there's a second woman in Proverbs, and if you look at chapter 5, Beginning in verse 15, he says, Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For all the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. So wisdom also tells us, the Lord also tells us, is that for the godly person, there is a right place in God's order for sex, and that is with your spouse. And as you turn away from Madame Folly and all of her expressions in the world, and you, you repent of that, you can turn to your spouse. And, and God's ideal is that you would direct all of your sexual energy and interest towards the spouse whom God has given you. And that you find great delight. The language is quite astounding here. Uh, normally, in Proverbs and elsewhere in the Bible, uh, self-control is a very positive feature. But here, you know, be exhilarated. Let yourself go. And the Song of Solomon, of course, uh, which Ian went through, goes through this in much more detail, that the happiness, the joy of a husband and a wife coming together and consummating their marriage covenant and their every sense, you know, the, the view of the husband and the wife of each other, the sound of the voice, the smell of the perfume, the touch, even the tastes of love. And it's okay in this situation to be intoxicated. And this is a blessing. And so marriage can help you. But there's a couple problems. One is, not everybody's married. What are you going to do? You'd like to be married, but you're not married. And not everybody who's married has a helpful spouse. Uh, elsewhere, Proverbs says there are some wives it'd be better to live on a corner of a roof than to share a room with that woman. There's some who are like rottenness in your bones. Just because you're married doesn't mean your spouse will be there. And even in a good marriage, your wife can't meet your ultimate need or your husband. And Sexual idolatry isn't just something that takes place when you want to pursue homosexuality or fornication or adultery or pornography. But sexual sexual idolatry can take place even within marriage when you look to your spouse to do for you what only God can. And it has its various expressions. Uh, I must... You know, and, and you know something's an idol when you get mad when you don't get it, and when your life revolves around it. And within marriage, the idea, I must have a thrilling sexual relationship with my spouse. They must be willing to be with me so many times. This often, I actually got to a conference one time, this young man, been married a couple of years, and he said he had a single friend who asked him, boy, what's it like to finally be married and get to have sex every day? And the newly married man said, I have no idea. 
Um, if you've bought into the world's idea of sexual, constant sexual exhilaration, movies, television, whatever, um, reality, being married as a sinner to a sinner, will never measure up. If, if you need sex as the ultimate fulfillment in your life, you will never be satisfied. Again, you know, my spouse must be this. You know, they shouldn't be sleepy when I want her to be awake. Uh, they must appreciate me. They must love me. They must like this as much as I do. They must say I'm an amazing lover. All the things that people want, think they need. So we've seen there's a woman who can destroy you, Madam Folly, sexual sin. There's a woman or a man, your husband, who can help you that marriage and sex within marriage can be a great blessing as God has given us these desires to be fulfilled within his order legitimately. But as I said, marriage may help you. I can't say it will help you because, as I already said, not everybody has marriage. Not everybody's everybody's marriage is working out exactly this way. And even in the best marriage, you're sinners married to other sinners and you're not going to be able to do for each other what only God can, which is the third woman in Proverbs, and that is it's Lady Wisdom, who I would say is the personification of Christ, who is the one who will protect you, who will guard you, as you make her your first love even beyond your spouse. When you realize your, your spouse will never meet your ultimate deepest need. And in Proverbs 4, he says in verse 5, acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, then she will guard you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. With all you're acquiring, get understanding. Prize her, she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. And, and the language there is, is similar. You know, the, a, a wife, a godly wife has a crown to her husband. Well, here saying is, is wisdom is your first love. And in the New Testament, we hear Christ is to us the wisdom from God. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And, and he is the one who will satisfy you. And, and I bring this right back in John's gospel. He says, everyone who eats this bread will be hungry again. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But it's he who gives us the very bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. The, the satisfaction of your thirsts and your hunger through physical food is legitimate, but it's not ultimate. And in the same way, the satisfaction of your sexual appetites in marriage is appropriate, but it's not ultimate. What you need most is Jesus, the bread of life, who satisfies your soul. And he will never let you down. And he alone will give you the ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction for which you were designed. It gets back to the disordered desire. Again, the disordered desire can be if you love your spouse, or really you want from your spouse, the ultimate love beyond your love for God, your order is wrong, and you're going to have trouble. Your desires can still be disordered even as a married person. It's when Christ is your first love that your life in every respect, including sexually, can be according to God's order and according to God's design. So now I want to speak to married people. I want to speak to single people, how this works out. It's the gospel that transforms everything about life, including marriage, including sex within marriage. And for those who are married, the best thing you can do for your marriage, even for your sex life within your marriage, is to pursue intimacy in your personal relationship with the Lord, to grow in Him. It's not read a book about sex. Uh, To find your greatest delight in Him, to continually renew your mind through His Word. When, When Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, having given Himself up for her, 
a husband needs to be an expert in experiencing the love of Christ himself so that he can reflect that love back to his wife. And if he's not living and reveling in that love, he won't be able to love her as God has called him to love her. Uh, An assignment I often give to married couples is to take Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. It's Paul's prayer. And I think it's a very important point in the book of Ephesians is that for the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is telling us all that God has done for us in the gospel. Chose us, redeemed us, sealed us. We were dead. He made us alive. He's made us part of his body, his holy temple. But before he goes on in chapter 4, what people call the practical stuff of all the stuff we're supposed to do as a result, he has a prayer for the Ephesians. And, And I will tell couples I'm counseling, whatever their problems are, is that what your marriage needs more than anything else is that this prayer would be answered in both of your lives. And I'll read the prayer beginning in verse 14. And I'll actually have them pray this together, pray this for themselves, pray this for each other. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory and in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever. Amen. See, what do we need if our marriages are struggling? What do we need if sex isn't working in marriage the way it should be? I believe what we need more than anything else. You can't do Ephesians 5 unless Ephesians 1 to 3 is in your heart. And none of us has fully grasped the love of Christ for us as we should. And when we're failing sexually or otherwise in marriage, it's because we are not adequately comprehending and being transformed by the love of Christ. And and this is where the sexual idolatry in marriage can actually be dealt with. You see, if you're fully satisfied in Christ, then you're not going to smother your poor spouse expecting them to do for you what only Jesus can. If you're expecting them to bring you everlasting, uninterrupted joy and never fail you, you're going to get angry because they're going to let you down. It's recognizing also that God is using your marriage, including sex within marriage, as an instrument not just for your pleasure, but also for your sanctification. And then the gospel itself enables you, and all the Bible says about marriage, it enables you to build a relationship that reflects God's love for us. And again, I love the example Sam gave initially. You've got this little model of the, the big reality, and our marriages are, are designed by God. You know, the great mystery of Christ and the church and marriage. And, and when this is working the way God has designed it, is that the more I grow in my covenant union with God in Christ and appreciate His love for me, the easier it's going to be for me to love my wife in a Christ-like way. But likewise, the more we experience the grace of God within our marriage, and we, we're loved graciously, unconditionally, with a covenant commitment, it also gives us a better anticipation and realization of the great love our bridegroom has for us that one day will be consummated in his presence. And so both are building on each other. Both strengthen each other. And almost all sexual problems in marriage aren't biology. They're mostly relationships. And I'm not going to go through... Um, all the details that are in the notes there in terms of it's, it's kind of the basics of what the Bible says about marriage. Um, what the gospel does for you is it transforms the way you treat your spouse. And when people come in, and I really enjoyed hearing Milton describe the way people talk when they come in and they're accusing each other and making excuses. It's so true. It's obvious he's done a lot of this because we see the same things as well. But something I've noticed is another way to put the paradigm of what people are like is people come in who, in their relationship to God, 
understand that God deals with them according to grace. And they're very glad for that because they know they're sinners. But they have marriages that are built upon law. And the law says you obey, you'll be rewarded. You disobey, you'll be punished. And you have people who would claim to be Christians who have these law-based marriages. And it's not just sexually, it's in every area of life. And if you treat me well, I'll treat you well. You treat me badly, I'll... Aren't you glad that's not the way God has dealt with you? And so, how does the gospel transform marriage, including sex? It's when you begin to have a grace-based marriage, including grace-based sex, instead of law-based marriage and sex. Um, There are many, many marriages in which the sexual relationship, along with other things, Again, is you give the other person what you think they've earned. And uh, Luther even talked, he had a funny quote how that he would see couples that when they first were married, they were virtually consumed in passion for each other, but then a year later they couldn't stand each other. How does that happen? It's because as our sin comes out and we deal with each other in a graceless way, um, the marriage suffers. So law-based sex is, it's a reward if you earn it. Um, we withhold it if they didn't deserve it. And I see both men and women doing this. I've actually been surprised to see how many young, virile men married to beautiful wives when they become embittered against their wife for not meeting their expectations, withhold themselves from that wife, often falling into temptation in other areas. You see, grace enables you to give to your spouse freely as God has done for you. And in a marriage which is founded on grace, each spouse is trying to outdo the other in grace. Will you come as a servant? A passage that we'll sometimes look at is in, in Romans 15. Say, so, well, boy, but my, my husband, I know he struggles with lust, and that just disgusts me. It makes me not want to be around him. Romans 15. One, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself, but as as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. But you see, my spouse is so insecure, they're just wanting sexual, I think my spouse is a sexual idolater, selfish. And I don't want to feed that. I don't want to help that. See, God hasn't called you to, to judge them or to straighten them out on this issue. God has called you to be gracious, not to despise their weakness. I love how Tom Maximus put it when someone in the marriage is struggling with lust. You, know, you look at Galatians 6.1. If someone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him gently each looking to yourself that you will not be tempted, rather than seeing yourself in a battle against your spouse and their struggle against sin, why don't you join your spouse in fighting against the sin instead of fighting your spouse? That I see you're struggling. As a fellow sinner, I understand what that struggle is. How can I help you? How can I come alongside of you? How can we build our marriage as a safeguard for you? I also love verse 7 of Romans 15. Therefore, accept one another as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Well, why should I accept my spouse sexually when I'm not treated the way I want to be treated? She doesn't take care of herself the way she should. He doesn't do this for me. Why does God accept you? Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Christ accepted you based upon grace, not law. He satisfied the demands of the law so that you could be received by grace. And God wants you to be gracious to your spouse so that, and the, the ultimate expression in marriage would be that 
when your spouse looks at you, they would say, this must be how God loves me because she knows me exactly as I am. She sees me with my sins and my faults, and still she cares for me. Still he loves me. Still he wants me. That's reflecting the gospel. And I think many of us, and again in counsel, we need to repent of this law mentality of, of deserving. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And then we seek to serve, not to take. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, which has been brought up already. And I'm going to bring up one really important point that maybe one of the most significant things I've found and in talking to others as well is that having gospel, grace, sex instead of law, sex, and marriage isn't just giving to the other person when they don't deserve it. It's receiving from the other person when you don't deserve it. I think that's a really, really important point that I haven't heard other people talk about very much. You see, in the same way that a resistance people have to the gospel is, you know, what's the big objection to the gospel? It's too easy, it's too cheap, it's too free. God saves us. We want to do something to earn salvation. And becoming a Christian is to come with the empty hands of faith and say, I'm the chief of sinners, and I must receive salvation as a gift that I don't deserve. You see, in the realm of love, we can do the same thing. And I've seen, it's usually men, but it can be a wife saying, well, I don't deserve to be loved. I've failed in all these ways. I know my... You know, I know I've let my spouse down, and so there's a withdrawal because I'm unworthy. And gospel grace and marriage means that you don't come to get what you've earned. Say, I'm only going to seek this or expect it or hope for it or receive it because I deserve it. That's law. It's love within my marriage, including sexual love, is grace. I humbly receive grace, I gratefully receive grace from my spouse as I have received from God. I am convinced that many spouses are kept apart because one or the other feels unworthy. And they're right, we are unworthy. But God shows grace to unworthy sinners. So the gospel should transform marriage as we bring the gospel into marriage rather than dealing with each other according to law, dealing with each other according to grace. And then finally, the gospel also transforms our singleness. Um, This has been brought out many times, especially by Sam, is that contrary to what our culture says, sex is not the ultimate life experience. I think Ian quoted from Fiddler on the Roof. I have a Fiddler on the Roof quote as well. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a find, catch me a catch. Matchmaker, matchmaker, look through your book and make me a perfect match. Huddle, oh huddle, have I matched for you? He's handsome, he's young, already 62. But he's a nice man, a good catch, true, true. I promise you'll be happy. And even if you're not, there's more to life than that. Don't ask me what. And in the humorous song in the play or the movie, The idea is these girls are only going to find their fulfillment if they get married. And in that case, because they're from a poor family, they may have to be somebody old or fat they wind up with. Um, And there's no more to life than that. Like I already quoted in in the movie Titanic, he saved me in every way that a person could be saved. And so we we live in this sex-obsessed culture, this ordered culture, which makes sex the ultimate thing. And uh, you pursue it however you wish. Look at John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is the ultimate experience in life? This is life. What is life? It's not even marriage. Marriage is nice. But marriage is the little model of the reality. Life is to know God. That is the ultimate experience in life. To taste and see that the Lord is good. I think this is important if you're single or married and you're you're drawn 
by the world. You're drawn by sexual temptation. You feel its pull. How can you fight that? It's to realize that God has given me, as John Piper would say, a superior pleasure with which to combat these inferior temptations. Test God when you feel tempted and read his word. Recall his promises. Think upon the love of Christ and see if that leaves you far more satisfied than delving into internet crud, fantasies, or other temptations. Now, for some who are single, marriage may be a blessing to which you can look forward. We've talked about that. You finds a wife, find what is good. Uh, what Ian talked about, to preserve your garden until the right time comes to be joined together in it. But you can enjoy the richest blessings God offers without being married or having sex. I liked what was said in, in Sam's breakout session yesterday, singleness is not the absence of marriage, but the presence of opportunity to serve the Lord. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, I wish you could all be like me. And, and his whole point of that chapter is that we each have been given a gift, and there are some people, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 19, who have been appointed by God either for a season or for life to serve God. And He's not saying it's going to be completely without temptation because we're fallen people in a fallen world, fallen bodies. But he is saying there is more than sufficient satisfaction in serving God in this life to offset whatever loss you may feel from not having a sexual relationship. And Sam was such a picture of that to us, isn't it? Where here he was. He's a man who does not expect to be married. He's committed to remaining pure but he's serving God as a single man with freedoms and opportunities married men might not have. And he finds his joy and fulfillment in that. And for some, and again, for some people, that's the way you are now and that will change. He made the statement, singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. See, the gospel is enough to have a life of joy. To know Christ is enough to be fulfilled in life. That's, you know, when Paul can speak as a joyful, contented man in 1 Corinthians 7 and other places, and he can rejoice in the Lord without being married because he was so united to Christ. He had a life of fulfillment, usefulness, and joy to the glory of God. Tim Keller writes, when you acknowledge God in his proper place of lordship over your life, you realize that marriage, therefore, is penultimate. It points to the real marriage that our souls need. Even the best marriage cannot fulfill the void in our souls left by God. Marriage is, I love the word penultimate. It just, it's, it's secondary. And there's one verse I've been thinking about a lot these last couple days that really proves that marriage is not the ultimate thing. And that's in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. This little phrase... For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. One day, we're all going to be, in a sense, single and satisfied. Is that true? Isn't that an amazing thought? You may be single now, but we're all going to be single someday. And I have to admit now, as a happily married man, the idea of being in heaven not married to Caroline is hard for me to comprehend, but I believe the Bible and I accept that. And, and the answer would be that I will be so fulfilled, satisfied, full of joy in the presence of Christ, my great heavenly bridegroom, when I experience the reality that I won't miss the little model that was meant to get me there in an instructive way. Is that an incredible thought? And as we were told, I think also by Sam, how marriage, uh, the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. It began with the marriage that's the typical marriage of the man and the woman, but then it ends in Revelation 21 that I saw a new heaven and a new earth. First heaven and earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, 
and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he says, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the waters of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The ultimate experience in life is knowing God. Your personal relationship with God now is a foretaste of what it will be when you see him face to face and you are like him. Your marriage, if you're married, is meant to be a picture of that. But it's not ultimate. That's the disordered desire, sex and marriage being the ultimate. The ultimate is being one with God in a heavenly union that will last forever And when that comes first, we can enjoy marriage, we can enjoy sex, and all the other blessings God gives us in this life in their proper place. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have hope for every one of us. I thank you, while we are all broken and failed, that the gospel offers hope both of forgiveness, but also transformation. You make us new people. You replace our desires, which were in inferior things that could never satisfy us, and fill us with a desire for you. Lord, help us to grasp your love for us. Help us to comprehend the breadth, the height, the length, the depth of the love of Christ that you would do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or imagine. Fill us up to the fullness of God. Satisfy us in yourself. Then help us to reflect your grace to one another in every relationship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2016. IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www ibcd.org